You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Acts. Here's Nate. Well, as we turn to Acts chapter 25, verse 13, we must remember here that Paul has now been a prisoner for a period of two years. Uh, He was arrested originally in Jerusalem, but the situation there was much too dangerous for him, uh, partly because of the hatred of the Jews, but it was made even more intense due to a group who had made a vow that they would not eat or drink until they'd assassinated Paul. And once the governing authorities heard of that plot, Paul was transferred to Felix in Caesarea, where Felix for two years played the middle ground and attempted to extract some kind of bribe from Paul. And after two years' time, was succeeded by a man named Festus. Now, Festus, Felix's successor, initially then offered Paul an opportunity to go back to Jerusalem to have a fresh trial. Paul, though, realized that this would be a very dangerous situation for him. And after two years waiting there in Caesarea, waiting for the will of Christ to unfold, because after all, Jesus had promised Paul that he would testify of him in Rome, Paul, tired and fatigued, appealed to Caesar. That was his right as a Roman citizen. And so in appealing to Caesar, to Festus, Festus now is bound by Roman law to send Paul eventually to Rome. But as we'll see here in this text, the problem is that he does not know what to tell Caesar about Paul. He does not know what kind of charge to put upon Paul. So this is where we pick up the story today. It says, Now when some days, verse 13, had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And so now we have the introduction of two more nobles to the story. Agrippa, who was the king of that region, so to speak, and then his sister, Bernice. Now, this brother and sister combination is a fascinating set of people. First of all, they were the great-grandchildren of the Herod who killed the babies in Jerusalem early on in the life of Christ. They were also the nephew and niece of the Herod who killed John the Baptist. And they were the children of the Herod who killed the Apostle James. So their family heritage is a horrible one, biblically. Also, they apparently had a suspect relationship. Bernice had been engaged to other men and married to other men. And now there were rumors that Agrippa and Bernice were in an incestuous relationship, which obviously the Jewish people would look down upon. But Agrippa had jurisdiction over Jerusalem and over the temple area where Paul had been originally arrested. And so it appears that Festus, in trying to figure out what kind of charge to bring against Paul, 
learned that Paul was originally arrested in Jerusalem, and so he thought, well, Agrippa should hear Paul's case, and maybe Agrippa can help me bring a charge against Paul to submit to the Caesar. So a very fascinating couple, and so they come onto the scene at Festus's request. And as they stayed there many days, verse 14, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So, verse 17, when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the men to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss, verse 20, how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Now, this is largely recap uh, from Festus in detailing that when he came into authority there in Caesarea, he saw that Paul was his prisoner, and so he sent for some of the officials from Jerusalem, and they had a small exchange, and that was when Festus offered Paul the opportunity to go for a fuller-length trial in Jerusalem, but that Paul dissented to that and appealed to Caesar. Now, it is interesting, the conclusion of Festus here is that it was a dispute about their own religion. In other words, he came to the conclusion that this was not about Roman civil law, but about religious matters. And it is also fascinating to see that he himself, as he overheard the conflict, boiled it all down to a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Uh, He considered that all of this boiled down to Paul's preaching of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So his desire here is to, you know, as, as he recaps this for Agrippa, is to say, I don't know, you know, what I'm to do with this man. Then Agrippa, verse 22, said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. And we'll learn later in the text that Agrippa apparently considered himself an aficionado of the Jewish religion and that to hear the kind of thing that Festus just said to him would have piqued his interest. And so Festus said, tomorrow you will hear him. So on the next day, verse 23, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Now, Luke gives us this little detail, which is an ironic detail concerning how this 
testimony from Paul was going to go. First of all, Bernice and Agrippa and all of these prominent people, military and politically, they gather together and they come together. And Luke's description of it is that they came with great pomp, you know, great ceremony. And then eventually, at the command of Festus, Paul unceremoniously was brought in. This is a beautiful and ironic contrast because, of course, in the eyes of God, the greatest man in that hall that day, and perhaps even the greatest man in all of the world at that moment, was Paul. But he, of course, was not the one to come in with such great pomp and ceremony, but he came in with humility at the command of a man who was in charge of him at the time. Whereas the group that were lowly esteemed in the sight of God, that should have come in with great humility, ready to learn and ready to receive, was actually the group that came in as the, as the judges. And this, I think, is a great picture so often into the way that God sees the world. There's just such a conflict, such an irony in all of it. Those who would sit on a seat to judge believers, those who would sit on a seat to tell believers how they ought to live their lives and what they ought to think, and those who sit in that seat of judgment against them should actually allow the tables to be turned and say, oh, believer, tell us the truth. Give us the gospel. Tell us what is right and tell us what is wrong. The reality is that Paul does not for a moment feel himself to be on trial, but will instead, in his response to Festus and Agrippa and Bernice, will instead put them on trial. So the irony here is so thick. I've actually been to the ruins or the remains of this hall there in Caesarea And as it beautifully overlooks the Mediterranean and you soak in the wonderful weather and the cool breeze from the ocean, you just look out on this thing that's so beautiful, so wonderful. And you can just imagine these people sitting there and in all of their pomp, you know, feeling so high and mighty about themselves as if they were in a position of such supreme authority. But there, this humble Jewish small man was actually the greatest man in the room. And Festus said, verse 24, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving of death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him, Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner to indicate, not to indicate the charges against him. Again, this is very flowery speech, but it's Festus basically saying, I desperately need something with which to charge Paul. I cannot send him to my supreme leader without reason or without cause. So in verse 1 of chapter 26, it says, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. As if 
as if here the Holy Spirit is not giving the permission, as if Agrippa is sovereign over Paul's life. He grants Paul permission to speak for himself. Now, this next address from Paul is actually going to be one of the most important addresses that Paul is going to give. Luke gives it the most detail. It's the most carefully constructed of the five different defenses that Paul gives throughout the book of Acts. And what Paul is going to do is not focus on himself, but he's going to take the opportunity to focus on the gospel. He's not going to focus on the charges brought forward by the Jews, and he's not going to even deal with Agrippa and Bernice and you know, the rumors about them. Instead, he is going to straightforwardly declare the glory of the message of the gospel. And again, as we mentioned earlier, the Lord had promised Paul that he would bear witness before Gentiles and kings, and this would be part of that fulfillment. So Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate, verse 2, that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now, here, Paul, in addressing Agrippa, says a couple of interesting things. First of all, he tells Agrippa that he is familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. The New King James Version, in writing out this verse or translating this verse, says, you are an expert of these customs and controversies. This is in contrast to Festus. Festus was not well versed in Jewish thought or culture or religion. But Agrippa had knowledge of the Jewish religion, including their customs and their controversies. Paul also, at the beginning of this message, asked Agrippa to listen to him carefully or patiently. Paul here is not passionate for his release. I don't even know if he was thinking about the possibility of being released at all. But what he was passionate for was for Agrippa to be saved. Seven or eight times throughout this message, Paul is going to refocus his address on Agrippa. Listen to me, he'll say, oh Agrippa. I, I want you to focus in on what I'm communicating right now. His passion at this moment is not his freedom, but is on Agrippa and his potential freedom should he come to Christ. And Paul also here in saying, listen to me patiently, seems to be saying, this might take me a little while to communicate. So listen up. He says in verse four, he says, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you 
that God raises the dead. Now, Paul bursts into this speech with absolute thunder. The first thing that he does is he references his old life that he'd lived according to the strictest party of their religion as a Pharisee. So Paul is announcing, look, I've lived as a devout Pharisee. You know, Festus is telling you that there's some kind of religious dispute that's happening here. But the reality is that I have actually been taught by a great rabbi. I've lived as a great rabbi. I have given myself to the stricter sect within or line within Judaism. And I've lived as a Pharisee. Then he tells Agrippa, he says, I'm being judged because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain. In other words, Paul went to the prophets to appeal to Agrippa. You know, later in this message, Paul is going to press Agrippa and say, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. So it appears here that Paul is referring to prophets that Agrippa was conscious of. So this is fascinating to consider that Paul thought of Jesus and the gospel message. He thought of all of that as a promise made by God to the Jewish fathers. And of course, as we go back into the Old Testament, we discover many promises from God that were designed for the people of Israel to anticipate the coming of a certain figure, the Messiah. Genesis 3 verse 15, God promised to Adam and to Eve after their fall that a day was coming when the offspring of the woman, there would come one who would bruise the head of Satan, even though Satan would bruise his heel. And of course, this is a prophecy of the coming of Jesus, the one who would crush the head of Satan under his feet. Later, when Abraham came onto the scene, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God promised that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And in Genesis 22, 18, that in your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So there was this promise to Abraham that somehow through his line, his lineage, the entire earth would receive a blessing. Again, the promise of the Messiah. Now later in Genesis 26 verse 4, that line was reiterated not just through Abraham, but also through Isaac. Then in Genesis 49 verse 10, through Judah. Then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, through David. So they were waiting for a figure who would crush the head of Satan, who would be a blessing to all of the nations from Abraham, through Isaac, through Judah, through David. So someone from the line of David. They were waiting for him to come from David's line, but to be similar to, to Moses. Deuteronomy 18 verse 15. 
God said to Moses, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. Moses was a deliverer. Moses brought the revelation of the law of God, the first covenant. And so Jesus would come as a deliverer. Jesus would come bringing a second covenant, bringing revelation. They were also waiting for this figure to be a king, but also to be a son. Psalm chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So this Messiah would be a king, but he would also be a son, the very son of God. He would come, Isaiah 7, verse 14, via a virgin birth, and he would be divine, Isaiah 9, verse 6. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And according to Jeremiah 23, verse 5 and 6, and other places, he would come bringing righteousness and justice. He shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And according to Daniel chapter 2, verse 44 and 45, and other places throughout Daniel, his kingdom would last forever. The thing they did not understand, however, is that this figure would be crushed first. Isaiah 53, verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So Paul just says, look, these are the promises that God made. We were waiting I've believed in the and have hoped in the promise made by God to our fathers. Then he says to him in verse 8, Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? You know, he just basically says to Agrippa, I don't understand why this would be such a shocking thing, me preaching the resurrection of the dead, because I'm preaching that God raised from the dead. The God who created, why would it be thought incredible that God would do or could do something like that? The incredibleness of the act is based on who does the act. Of course, God has all of the ability in the world, and so resurrection is not a problem for him. Now he goes on and he begins to expand on his own testimony. He says, I myself was convinced, verse 9, that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. This is likely the vote against Stephen and, and for his death. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So here, Paul is now for the third time recorded by Luke here in the book of Acts, Paul is sharing his testimony. 
And actually here in this third giving of his testimony or declaration of his testimony, there is a bit of new information. First of all, this is the place where we get the record of Jesus saying to him, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, goads were something that would be put behind an ox that were sharp and painful for the ox to kick against. So if the ox was tired of working, tired of pulling and all of that, uh, he would kick. But when he kicked, it would hurt. And so this would prod him forward. So for Paul, as he kicked against the goads, so to speak, he was kicking against reality. He was kicking against the truth. Now, of course, when Paul records a little tidbit about his conversion in Romans chapter 7, it appears that the words, thou shall not covet, had begun to haunt his heart because he knew that covetousness or sin was living inside of him, that he could not keep that law. So as he kicked, he was hurting himself and others. And this is helpful to us because it helps us understand that a Harsh rejection of the gospel is better than an apathetic response to the gospel. Paul was harshly responding, yet was ripe for the harvest. And Paul goes on to say in verse 15, And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Here we have afresh Jesus' commission to Paul, you are to go and open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Now, this, of course, is the biblical reality. It says in John chapter 3, verse 19, that the light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. It says in Ephesians 4, verse 18, that they are darkened in their understanding. It says in Ephesians 5, verse 8, we are reminded that we at one time were in darkness, but now are light in the Lord. And that he, Colossians 1.13, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And what a delight it was for Paul to go around the world preaching the gospel that would give illumination to people and turn them from darkness to light, from Satan's power to God's power. Therefore, he said to Agrippa, verse 19, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, 
performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Fascinatingly, Paul tells Agrippa, I have had the help that comes from God. Paul is able to look back now over the years and see all the different miles that he had traveled, all of the fruitfulness in his life. And he's thinking back to day one of his Christian experience, and he sums up his entire Christian life by saying, I've had to this day the help that comes from God. It's one thing to have a great beginning with visions and voices, but it's another thing to continue on when things are hard. And Paul had done that. And here he proclaims to Agrippa that Christ had to suffer. Genesis 22, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, the Christ had to suffer. But by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and also, he says, to the Gentile world. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, who, you know, had invited Agrippa and Bernice to be there in the first place, interrupted Paul. He said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. And that's where we will pick up our teaching the next time. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.